So Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 11, the first 20 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen in your, to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh, man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you not know why... Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of these. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. As soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place, 
He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come up on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One big objection to belief in the existence of God that you will hear pretty often is the existence of evil. People will ask the question, if there is a God who is all good and he's all powerful, why is there evil in the world? And some reject the existence of God because they can't square those realities. And even for those of us who are believers, we've had this question as well, I'm sure. We've asked ourselves, how does this work? We do believe in a God who is all good and a God who is all powerful. And then we look around and we see vast and unspeakable evils in our world. And we ask, how do these things fit together? This is not a new question, and it's not a question from which the Bible shirks. It comes up in the Bible a number of times, although there is no one systematic answer to this question. It's raised in a number of different ways, oftentimes in prayer of those who believe. And it is answered in different ways as well. What we have in this last vision here, which takes up these three chapters, we have something like an answer, although not a systematic answer to the question, but we do have something of an answer to a wrestling on Daniel's part as he has his faith in God, and he also looks around at the situation, not only of the world, but the situation especially of his own people. And he's wrestling in prayer about this question. And in answer, we get this vision. 
Now, this vision will not answer all of the questions that Daniel had, and it'll actually answer many more that he didn't have because it goes well beyond what he was asking. But here we, we hear a man, this man of prayer, this man of the word, as he's wrestling, and we get this vision in response to that. Now, once again, we have a dating at the very beginning in chapter 10. It refers to the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, Daniel would have been up in his 80s, most likely. And here we have the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So this is two years after the vision we saw last week. And in this third vision, we have the rest of the book here. And this is significant, this third year of Cyrus, because something happened in the first year of Cyrus, which is also identified in Daniel as the first, re, uh, first year of Darius the Mede. So on that first year of Darius the Mede, which was the first year of Cyrus the Persian, who may have been the same person or may have been, uh, one may have been the official of the other, there was a decree, a decree that Cyrus made, and that decree was this, that the Jews who had been exiled by the Babylonians back in 586 B.C. and in some other invasions before that, they could go home. And not only could they go home, back to Jerusalem, but they could rebuild the temple. They had authority from the king of the world, as he conceived himself to be, to go back to their home and to rebuild the temple. And they started that. You can look at Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, the first few verses, we have the decree of Cyrus there, and we also have the people beginning to go back to the land. But they went back to the land, and they were very enthusiastic, but they found that things were not as easy as they had hoped. On the contrary, they were much more difficult. There was opposition all around. The nations all around them opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem, opposed the building of the temple. And so what did they do? They got discouraged, and they stopped. And the building of the temple was delayed for many, many more years. Now, it's likely, it's likely that Daniel knew about this because there were some going back and forth. He stayed as an old man. He stayed in Persia. He didn't go back with the, the returnees. He stayed, but it's likely that he received some information. So two years after the building was supposed to be going up, very little had gotten done. And so what did Daniel do in response? He prayed and he fasted and he did so for three weeks. And that's what it describes there in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. You see, this was not how it was supposed to go. A couple years earlier, the decree had gone out, and they were going to go back, back in their land, just as Jeremiah, God had promised through Jeremiah. And, and Daniel knew about that, and we, we saw that last week about the 70 years, and the 70 years, it looks like they were up, and the people were going back to the land, the temple was going to be rebuilt, the people were going to have a place to worship God once again and offer sacrifices to the Lord, but it, it wasn't working out. And so he mourned, he grieved, he prayed, he fasted. He didn't even bathe and anoint himself. So he was, he was completely distraught, and he was praying and praying. And in answer, he gets this vision. Now, this vision is given to him. The first thing of the vision is somebody shows up. In verses 4 to 6, a man shows up. It says, he lifted up his eyes, he was by the river Tigris, he lifted up his eyes, and there was a man, and he was dressed in linen. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, who wore linen? The priests wore linen. And so he's dressed as a priest, but he's a, a very impressive priest. He's got a belt of fine gold around his waist, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes 
like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And basically the rest of chapter 10 is Daniel trying to get it together and getting help from this man to get it together. Because he, he first just, he just falls out, he faints. And then he's able to get up to his, with some help and encouragement, up to his hands and his knees. And then he's able to stand up, but he's barely able to speak. And so the rest of this chapter is this, this interaction between this, this man and Daniel. And Daniel is overwhelmed by the sight of this man. So Daniel perceived the vision. Others fled in terror. They didn't perceive the vision, but they knew something was very odd. And they were frightened, and they just took off. And then Daniel passed out. And then we have in verses 10 and 11, the, a hand touched him. Now, there's some who think that there are more, there's more than one character here, but it seems to me that it's the same one who appeared to him, that that hand touched him, and later a voice speaks to him. And it's kind of vague, but it seems to me that it's the same person that is appearing to him, touching him, and speaking to him. But this, this person touched him, and he was eventually able to get to his feet. And the man explained something that's, that's interesting here. And it's, it's unusual for us, but it's instructive. He said, I, I was on my way. I was on my way from the beginning of your three-week fast. An answer was given. This is in verse, look at verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before the Lord, your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your word. So, Right away. Do you remember how fast his prayer was answered last week? Well, now the same sort of thing. The answer went out, but something happened. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. So the whole time of his fast, this, this person who was trying to get to Daniel, he, he, had, he had a situation and he wasn't able to do it because he had to deal with the prince of the kingdom of Persia of Persia who had withstood him for 21 days, but he wasn't alone because Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help him. Now we've had in Daniel something unusual. We've had what looked like angels, celestial beings, messengers of God named. We already had one. What was his name? Gabriel. And now we have another one. His name is Michael. And so Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And so it looks like it looks like he, he left Michael, perhaps, battling with the prince of the king of Persia, and he was able to get away for a little while and go answer Daniel, but then he's going to go back. And he speaks to him, but then he says, I'm going back, and um, no one is there helping me. If you go down to verse 21, uh, verse 20, he says, I've come to you, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side ex against these except Michael, your prince. And then verse, 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11 really should be with chapter 10. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Who is the him? It's Michael. And so here is this voice speaking to Daniel. And he's saying, Michael is the only one who was helping me. And in the first year, two years ago, I was helping him. So there's a partnership between this person who is speaking and Michael, and they are the ones contending against the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So um, after this, this man spoke to Daniel, he felt weak once again, and he touched, uh, them. he touched Daniel, he strengthened him again, 
and he explained that he was going back, but he was going to reveal something first. Now, of course, we have in our minds this question, who are, who are these persons, right? So we have this, this one with this, this, he's dressed like a priest, but, but he's, he's shining, he's brilliant, he's, he's glamorous, he's flaming, um, his words are like the sound of a multitude, and then we have him mention the prince of the kingdom of Persia, then later he mentions the prince of Greece, and then he also mentions Michael. Who are these, these persons? Well, they're not explained here, but uh, we can kind of put two and two together. And actually, a number of people have, have put not only two and two together, but they've read a lot into this as well. But let's try to, try to in this context, figure out who these are. Now, this, this person with whom Daniel speaks... On the one hand, it looks like he's a divine character, like Daniel responds to him as if he's in the presence of God. Um, but on the other hand, if this is a divine character, why was he delayed by somebody else for 21 days? So he doesn't seem to be all-powerful. He seems to be wrestling with others and was delayed and needs help from Michael, and he's the one who helps Michael. And so there's some, some ambiguity because his, his appearance looks divine, and Daniel's reaction to him looks divine, like to a divine person, and yet he doesn't seem to be all-powerful. And then we have the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and the prince uh, of Greece, and we have Michael. And so Michael, we know that Michael is an angel, and so it looks like this other one who's speaking to Daniel is also what we would call an angel, which means messenger, a celestial being on God's side. And then if they're contending against the prince of the kingdom of Persia, then, then this is an opposing celestial being. And this opposing celestial being apparently also is in league with other opposing celestial beings representing Greece. And it looks like, at least in the case of the opposing forces, they have some sort of regional or national assignment. And here's where people have gone kind of wild with this. And they have you know, we come up with territorial demons and so on. And, and it looks like there is some, some suggestion of that, but it's, it's not spelled out for us. Others have done us the favor of spelling it out in great detail uh, about the, the demon of this and the demon of that. And they've gone way beyond what the scripture says. But there is indication here that there are assignments, assignments given to these, these, these infernal forces these angelic beings, but evil angelic beings, and that they, there is a battle going on. That's what's abundantly clear, isn't it? Because Daniel is just seeing what's going on in his world, isn't he? But this is kind of pulling back the curtains and saying to Daniel, Daniel, there's a whole lot more going on than you realize. There is a battle raging that is unseen to you. And I need to get back to this battle because, because it's a fierce battle. And, and there's not a whole lot of help on our side. And it's Michael and I against the forces that are supporting the, the kings of Persia and the kings of Greece. And so, at the very least, what we take away from this is, is what the New Testament affirms as well. That there is a spiritual battle raging, raging behind the events of humanity, behind the history of our world, behind the clashes of civilizations. There is a battle that is raging, both against and for the people of God. Now, this, this man speaking to Daniel, 
he may be identifiable with a, a person that shows up in the, the patriarchal times back in Genesis, the angel of the Lord, because the angel of the Lord is very mysterious as well. Sometimes he seems like a man, sometimes he seems like an angel, and sometimes he seems like God himself. And if you look at this, this man, this person, he seems almost divine. He, he's definitely an angel that is a messenger. And he also looks like a man. And so there is this, this blending together of the divine and the human. Divine in the form of a man. Now, it's vague in the Old Testament, but we know how that plays out in the rest of the scripture. That God did take the form of humanity. And he became one of us. And he showed us, not vaguely, but he showed us clearly what he is like by God becoming a human and walking among us and showing us God. Now, that's chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, we have the beginning of the, the vision. And this vision takes up the rest of the, the book. Now, let me review to try to, to show us where we are here. Because what we've been doing, or what, what we're seeing in this book, we haven't been doing it, we've been witnessing it, is that we're getting more specific. We're getting more focused. We've seen a number of visions. Let's try to put these together in our minds, and that'll help us with this chapter 11 and 12. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision about four kingdoms. It was a statue with gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. And those were four kingdoms, and he was the first kingdom. Babylon was the first kingdom. And then there were three kingdoms after. And then in the time of that fourth kingdom, do you remember there was going to be a fifth kingdom set up? But it wasn't a human kingdom. It was a kingdom set up with a stone that was hewn out of a mountain. And that kingdom would fill the whole earth and be an eternal kingdom. That was the first vision about kingdoms. Then we had, in chapter 7, Daniel saw a vision of four beasts. And these four beasts were also kingdoms, in place of which, once again, God would set up an eternal kingdom. And there was one like a son of man who would be receiving universal authority over all. And so it looks like chapter 2 and chapter 7, is. it looks like they're talking about the same four kingdoms that many identify as Babylon, Persia, and Media together, Greece, and then Rome. Now... Most likely, that's the identification. And then in chapter 8, we saw a second vision that was now narrowed in on these middle two kingdoms, the Medo-Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdom. And we saw that the Persian kingdom would be followed by the Greek kingdom. And we identified Alexander the Great as the conqueror there who would conquer the known world and then die very young. And his kingdom would be divided among four other kingdoms. Okay? So we have the four kingdoms, and then we focus on two of the kingdoms, then we focus on one of those kingdoms, Greece, and guess what happens to that kingdom? It gets divided into four more kingdoms that begin to fight against each other. Now what do we have in this chapter? We are now focusing on two of these four sub-kingdoms, two of the four smaller kingdoms that were divisions from the kingdom of Greece. And they are called the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. The kings of the south were reigning in, these were the Ptolemies, these were the ones reigning in Egypt. Then there were the kings of the north 
in Syria and Babylon, and those were the Seleucids. So we have two kingdoms that we know from history. So are you with me? Did okay, you follow that? Four kingdoms, focus in on two kingdoms, focus on one of those kingdoms, and then four kingdoms that come out of that, and focus on two of those sub-kingdoms that came out of the Greek kingdom, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Now, as we look at this chapter, we are not going to look into all the details here. It's very complicated, isn't it? And it was very hard for me to read it because it's, it's very confusing what's going on. But when you have the opportunity, what you should do is look up the history of the world and look up that period of the world because we know a great deal about it. And you will find a remarkable, a remarkable correspondence between the predictions here and what we know of the history of the world between 322 and 163 BC. One author who studied this in great detail, he identified of those two sub-kingdoms that we're talking about now, the Ptolemies and the Seleucid kingdoms, the Egypt and the Syrian kingdoms, he identified 13 different rulers in chapter 11 out of the 16 that we know about. So not all of them were there, but most of them were there. And he was able to identify 13 of the 16 rulers in this back and forth struggle. And what do we have here, basically? It, we could, it, it's, it's, it's very confusing as I say, all these different movements. But what we have is basically this conflict between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of the south. And there is this back and forth battling between these two kings, but neither is able to completely dominate the other. And that's why it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And there are attempts at alliances. There is a marriage alliance that falls apart. And we know about that from history. And uh, there's an airborne of that, but that doesn't, that doesn't work out. So there are these attempts at alliances. There are these back and forth struggles between these kings. There are plunderings. When one goes here, he plunders this one. And one goes there, he plunders that one. And it's back and forth and back and forth. But there's no final victory of one of these over the other. And that's why it just keeps going, going and going and going back and forth and back and forth. One goes in and invades. He gets repulsed. He gets a bigger army, goes back. And then in the meantime, this one invades him. And it's back and forth and back and forth. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? It's important because of geography. That's why it's in the Bible. Not just because it's fascinating world history. It's in the Bible because of geography. Think about it. Here's Egypt. Here's Syria. Who's in the middle? Israel's in the middle. So guess what happens every time one of these kings marches against the other? Over whose territory does he march? Israel. That's right. And that's why this is here. And Daniel is wondering, Lord, what about my people? What, what are you doing? This is not working out. Like, like I thought it was going to work out, and like I thought you said it was going to work out. And then he shows this, this, this vision of the future when it wasn't going to work out well for them either, that they would be constantly being trampled by these kings of the north and south. And it's mentioned here explicitly, if you look at verse 16 of Daniel chapter 11, it mentions Israel in the middle and it uses an expression that we've already seen. It mentions the, the glorious land 
It says, but all, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. And actually the Jews would get involved. Some of them would get involved in the conflict, and that's, that's mentioned here. In verse 14, it says, In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision that they shall fail. And so even some of the Jews got involved in these conflicts between the king of the north and the king of the south. But I want you to see something here. The answer to Daniel's mourning about the sad state of his people is this vision. And in this vision, God shows that it was going to get worse. That, that's, that's the answer. He's mourning for weeks. And he wants to know, Lord, why, why are things so bad for my people who are your people? What is going on? Things are not working out. Like we, we had hoped that they would work out, and we thought that they should work out, and we understood from your word. Our reading of your word indicated that, that things should be better. What, what, are we, what are we missing, Lord? Show me something. And he, he shows him something, doesn't he? And he shows him it's going to get worse in the future before it gets better. Now, that's part of the, the answer. But then if we read this and reread this and reread this, we find out that that's not all of the answer. Because in this vision, even in this vision of coming conflict, in which the, the Jews would constantly be the pawns in the middle of these, these empires, there are reminders that God is in control. And this is really the message of this whole book of Daniel, isn't it? In the first six chapters, God's people are getting promoted one after another to be the highest the, um, magistrates in the kingdom. And in the last six, six chapters, they're getting trampled. And the message is the same in both. No matter what happens, God is in control. Now, how, is that, how does that come out in these, in these verses that we've read today? Well, one is this, and we already saw this. God's agents... God's agents are working behind the scenes to bring about his will. Chapter 10, we met some of those agents. We met this man who was contending against the prince of the kingdom of Persia. We met Michael, and they're supporting each other. They have each other's backs, as it were, as it were. And they are working on behalf of whom? They're not working for their own sake. They're working for the glory of God, but they're also working for the sake of the people of God. We're not alone in this battle. There are others that are far mightier than we on our side. That's, that's the first answer. God's agents are working unseen on behalf of God's people to bring about God's will. And then in addition to that, both the celestial and the human agents that are in this, this prophecy eventually will fulfill God's will. Now, uh, it says a couple times, there's this expression, we've seen it more than once, we saw it in, in the previous chapter, with this expression, will do as he wills, will do as he wills. And it describes a couple of the rulers here, chapter 11, verse 3, 
It says, a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. That's Alexander the Great. And then it mentions in verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. But in all these cases, they do as they will. But because this is predicted beforehand, whose will ultimately are they doing? Who set this up? Who predicted that this was going to happen? Who, who, who predestined this to happen? Whose will are they accomplishing ultimately? They're accomplishing God's will. We see a remarkable verse, a remarkable verse in the New Testament that, that expresses this, this combination of humans doing what they will doing what they want to do, and fulfilling God's purposes, even against their own inclination. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, here the believers are praying. Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has come upon them, they're preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, and there's immediate opposition. And they're praying, and they, they remind God of, of Psalm 2, about the Gentiles raging and the people's plotting in vain in verse 25 and 26. And then they say this, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's astounding. Those two verses. Here we have Herod. What was Herod doing? Ask Herod what he's doing. And say, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the king. He wasn't really a king, but he got the title. I, I do what I want. I do my will around here. Pilate, what do you do? Pilate would say, I do whatever I want. I'm the governor. I do my will. What about... What about the Gentiles? What were they doing with Jesus? They were doing what they wanted to do with Jesus. What were the, 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 the Jews who were against Jesus? What were they doing? They were doing their will. And they thought that their will was sovereign. But whose will were they doing? It says in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And what was that? It was to kill Jesus. You want, you want to pick an event in the scripture that, that looked like everything going wrong? You want to pick one event where it looks like God has finally lost control, that his plans have finally been overcome, that things are finally going to, to go down the tube because he can't do anything about it. It's the crucifixion of his son. That, that looks like, at first glance, to be the final defeat of God, the final overcoming of his will. He sent his son to be the savior of the world, the Messiah, the ruler of all. And what happens to him? They kill him. And what do they accomplish by doing that? Just what God had predestined to take place. It is impossible for humans to overcome God's will. And in fact, we will fulfill his holy purposes. 
even in the death of his son, we see that the, the evil plans of humanity, backed up by the evil plans of celestial beings, accomplished exactly what God had predestined. And thanks be to God, that is for the salvation of all who trust in him. So, two ways. We have the celestial beings working behind the scenes. We have even the ones that are visible, they are doing what God has predestined to happen. And the third thing is this. And this is, this is a, a grammatical point. And that is, there are a number of, if you read this, God doesn't really show up in these, these chapters, does he? He's, he looks like he's absent. And that's, that's the problem when things are going wrong. Things are going badly. It, it looks like God is absent, doesn't it? Where, where is God when these terrible things are happening? But the grammatical point is this. There are all these passive verbs. These passive verbs where the subject of the verb isn't mentioned. Something just happens. And it leaves us asking, who did this? Let me read you some of these passages. The, 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 the man says, I have been sent to you. Chapter 10, verse 11. Who sent him? Your words have been heard. Chapter 10, verse 12. By whom? His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds. Chapter 11, verse 4. Who's doing the breaking? Who's the one dividing the kingdom up to the four winds? Chapter 11, verse 4. His kingdom shall be plucked up. Who, who's doing this plucking after all? Verse 6. She shall be given up. Who's giving her up? Verse 11. It shall be given into his hand. Who's doing the giving? The multitude is taken away, verse 12. Who took it away? He shall be broken, verse 20. Who's doing the breaking? You see, all through this text, God doesn't show up apparently. But there are all these passive verbs. We call these divine passives. Why divine passives? Because somebody is doing all of these things. So it's not that God is inactive, but he's doing things anonymously here. He is acting even when we can't see his hand explicitly, and even when that's not mentioned explicitly. So, for believers in the time of Daniel, what was the message? Things are going to get worse, but God is in control. Things are going to get worse before they get better, but they will get better. Things are going to get worse, but they will get better because God is working all his holy will, and there's nothing that any human can do about that except fulfill it. Hallelujah. That's the message for the people in the time of Daniel, and that's the message for us as well. Your marriage may get worse before it gets better. Your health, if you live long enough, it's going to get worse. Your economy may get worse before it gets better. Your children may get worse before they get better. Your job may get worse before it gets better. The state of our country may get worse before it gets better. The state of the world worse before it gets better. But better it will get sooner or later because that's what God has determined. This shouldn't surprise us, really, because this is the path that Jesus took, wasn't it? Things were going so well in his ministry. 
Multitudes were following him. And then he drops the bombshell, maybe about halfway through his ministry, where he says, the Son of Man is going to be rejected by the chief priests. They're going to beat him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. And he's going to be crucified. Things are going to get worse. And then he said, but on the third day, he will rise from the dead. And things are going to get better and very, very much better. That's the, the good news. It was the path that Jesus took. And then he says, come follow me. And this is where faith comes in, isn't it? We, we, don't, see, we don't see those unseen beings fighting behind the scenes. We, we don't see God's plan from beginning to end. We don't see the divine actor showing up always and saying, I'm the one who's doing this. But all of these things are always there. And they always work together for the glory of God and for the good of those who believe in his name. We walk by faith, not by sight. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this, this tour of what for us is ancient history, what for Daniel were things to come. And you fulfilled it. We can read it in the history books. You did what you said you would do. And you did so in ways that are beyond our comprehension. We could ask many questions about the details of why you did this or why you did that. But we recognize once again our limitations and we express once again our trust in you. You know what you're doing and you are all powerful and it is good. And we see that most clearly in the work of your son who suffered the most unspeakable evil in order to rise from the dead and give life to the world. And we trust in him. And we pray in his name.